This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by the Messy Spirituality Podcast. Hey, this is Jason Elam. Join Lola Robbins, Kyle Butler, and me for the Messy Spirituality Podcast, where we try to empower your spiritual evolution with honest conversation about how to be a better human, taking a critical look at toxic Bible stories, and look behind the headlines for growth opportunities underlying current events. Hey, it's a bisexual hairstylist who escaped a cult, a black mystic, and a recovering Southern Baptist preacher. What could possibly go wrong? Check out the Messy Spirituality Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to the Wild Olive Podcast game-changing conversation about literature, culture, and the Bible. In today's episode of Wild Olive, we're talking about the Bible's portrayal of women in light of a poetry collection by Carol Ann Duffy, a still-living Scottish poet whose collection, The World's Wife, contains poems that imagine the perspectives of women connected to famous male figures, including some figures from the Bible, like Pontius Pilate, Herod, and Lazarus. I'm your host, Jean Patrol. And I'm your other host, Jennifer Bird. Hi, Jennifer. Hey, Jean. I have to say I'm really excited about today's conversation with you. You have exposed me to so many gems in terms of literature and poetry that works with some of these characters and these ideas. So I'm excited to see where our conversation about Mrs. Lazarus takes us. Me too. Do you want to start by reading the story of Lazarus so it's fresh in everyone's minds? Absolutely. I will read parts of John chapter 11. It's a long story, but I've pulled what I think are the most significant pieces that touch on or resonate with parts of the poem that you're going to read, just so people hear it from the gospel first. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, and his sister sent a message to Jesus, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. Rather, it is for God's glory, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Accordingly, though Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, after hearing that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And farther down in the chapter, when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, She knelt at his feet and said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. This is, of course, after he's come to Bethany now. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was greatly disturbed in spirit and moved. He said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus began to weep. And then another few verses later, Then Jesus, again greatly disturbed, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. 
Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, already there's a stench because he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus looked upward and said, Father, I thank you for having heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I have said this for the sake of the crowd standing here, so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The dead man came out, his hands and feet bound with strips of cloth, and his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Thank you for that. I appreciate that reading. (laughs) Thanks. I know that we have a poem to talk about, but when I listen to you read that passage, it makes me think that sometime I think we need to talk about Jesus as a consummate performance artist. It strikes me (laughs) in this passage that he's highly aware of what his audience needs. And I find that really interesting. That uh, That is actually a really interesting commentary. And that is specific to John's gospel, I would say. Mm. Are you ready to hear Mrs. Lazarus along with our listeners? I think so. Let's let's hear it. Okay, folks, here's Carol Ann Duffy's Mrs. Lazarus. I had grieved. I had wept for a night and a day over my loss, ripped the cloth I was married in from my breasts, howled, shrieked, clawed, at the burial stones till my hands bled, wretched his name over and over again, dead, dead. Gone home, gutted the place, slept in a single cot, widow, one empty glove, white femur in the dust, half, stuffed dark suits into black bags, shuffled in a dead man's shoes, noosed the double knot of a tie round my bare neck, gaunt nun in the mirror, touching herself. I learnt the stations of bereavement, the icon of my face in each bleak frame. But all those months he was going away from me, dwindling to the shrunk size of a snapshot, going going, till his name was no longer a certain spell for his face. The last hair on his head floated out from a book. His scent went from the house. The will was read. See, he was vanishing to the small zero, held by the gold of my ring. Then he was gone. Then he was legend, language, my arm on the arm of the schoolteacher, the shock of a man's strength under the sleeve of his coat along the hedgerows. But I was faithful for as long as it took, until he was memory. So I could stand that evening in the field, in a shawl of fine air, healed, able to watch the edge of the moon occur to the sky and a hare thump from a hedge, then notice the village men running towards me, shouting. Behind them, the women and children, barking dogs, and I knew, I knew by the sly light on the blacksmith's face, the shrill eyes of the barmaid, 
the sudden hands bearing me into the hot tang of the crowd, parting before me. He lived. I saw the horror on his face. I heard his mother's crazy song. I breathed his stench, my bridegroom in his rotting shroud, moist and disheveled from the grave's slack chew, croaking his cuckold name, disinherited, out of his time. Thank you for that, Jean. You bet. Yeah, it's a lovely reading of the poem. I'm curious what it is that occurs to you as you read this poem, Jean. The first thing that I would observe is that it makes present a woman who isn't actually in the story. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and I, I love literature that does this. We've talked before about other literary works that offer what I would call a midrash on a particular biblical text. Uh, the one that comes to mind immediately is Ursula Le Guin's She Unnames Them, which tells the story of creation from the point of view of the woman. And so here is this poem from the point of view of a woman who isn't mentioned in the story. And I guess what strikes me most about this perspective is that it brings the materiality of Lazarus's death into focus, whereas the biblical story is so focused on spiritual performance art, <laughs> which I also think is really interesting, by the way. I think the idea of raising people from the dead or bringing life to places where there's deadness, as a metaphor, I think that's super interesting to think about. As a material reality, it's rather macabre, and this poem <laughs> <laughs> yep. refocuses our attention on that. Yep. How about you, Jennifer? What strikes you when you hear this poem? The, the same things, honestly. I Because I grew up with and trained in biblical studies, right, and thinking about what these stories are trying to present and teach us, right? And I think part of what the John 11 chapter is trying to teach us is something about Jesus's divinity and something about, you know, that power in him or something. And so I think that the Christian tradition and people who grow up with these stories and scriptures and are focused on that, I think there's a reason for them to be focused on that. And it's because the stories teach them to be. And I think there's so much that's lost or left out or that people are taught to overlook the materiality, as you put it. They're taught to overlook the very real elements of people's lives that, you know, this kind of a story just skims right over when all you're doing is seeing that, oh, someone Jesus cared about died, and then he goes and raises him from the dead. And so over and over, over the centuries, people know he's going to raise him from the dead. So we don't care about everything that takes place in the other people's lives who loved Lazarus for those three or four days. We don't care because we're taught to care about this guy, Jesus, and what he's doing, right? So yeah, I... I just love how it kind of stopped me in my tracks as I started reading this the first time and thought, yeah, yeah, I hadn't, I, I hadn't ever stopped to consider this, you know? Yeah. Well, as you know, I really like to repurpose <laughs> biblical texts and I, I reject total 
church control over the meaning of the text, because I think that meaning lives as much in the reader as in the storyteller and as in the, the text itself, also as a material artifact. So it's fascinating to me to reflect on what the story can mean apart from a particular dogmatic formulation. I like to think about that. Mm -hmm. But I also wanted Mm -hmm. to talk about the idea of resurrection. And I think maybe maybe we will get to talking about the idea of resurrection in a metaphorical context. But I was wondering if you can flesh out for us. I'm sorry for that pun. I did not intend that (laughs) pun. I swear to you, I didn't mean it. I, just, I saw it on I your face think as you started of another to say word. I'm trying to think of another <laughs> word, but can you elaborate for us on the idea of resurrection <laughs> in the Hebrew Bible? Because this is not a unique act in the Newer Testament. There are other resurrections. I'm thinking of Elijah and Elisha raising people from the dead. There are also the stories of, I mean, the story of Jesus himself, and here the story of Lazarus. Can you help us understand this cultural focus on, I would call it, reversing the permanence of death? At the very least, the idea of resurrection is this imaginative way of reversing the permanence of death. Can you talk about resurrection in its cultural context a little bit? You know, I think the the best way I know to get at that, aside from the Elijah and Elisha bit, which, by the way, we ought to just kind of put a pin mm-hmm. in that, right? I'd like to reiterate what you said there, Jean, that so many people, again, with good reason, it's the way they've been taught to think about it all. But so many people think that everything that is attributed to Jesus in the Gospels is unique to him, or he's the first to have done it, or when he does it, it has new, a different meaning than when other people before him have done it, or other people at the same time in history as him when they did it. So I think it's deeply important for people to be aware that the same way that you might hear and read this story about Jesus raising Lazarus was the same way that the people would have heard it when Elijah did that. But I actually like the story in Ezekiel. You will rarely hear me say like and Ezekiel in the same sentence. (laughs) (laughs) But that dry bones image Mm, passage is really powerful to me. I I, I was going to say, I'm not sure that I'm as connected to these kinds of imagery as some people are, but I think it's a very powerful metaphor. I think it works very powerfully. I think it works because of the depth of desolation or the story of the dry bones in the valley that are that God talks about through the prophet giving life to again. It's just a valley full of dry bones for those who aren't familiar with the story. And the the prophet talks about God putting sinews back on and the skin and enlivening these bodies back to living status. And this metaphor is used when they are in exile and they are bereft. I mean, they are beyond this sense of having any place to be or stand, the lack of identity, the having been defeated over and over and life realities that I just cannot relate to. And I think that that's an important thing to say, right? I think many of these rather extreme metaphors 
I guess even as I say this, I'm going to change my mind. But I think that there's a certain part of that metaphor is important. I want, when I talk about it with students, I very much want them to respect and understand the place that the people were in for such a dramatic Mm -hmm. metaphor to be used to begin with, and that it did give hope and some sense, some seed of the power or the energy to survive and to persist because there is hope. But your language, Jean, about challenging the permanence of death, I, I'm such, it's a beautiful and vivid, vivid description of what is happening in these stories. And I think in each place, there's, a, there's an element of desperation or, you know, feeling, feeling utterly bereft. I keep coming back to that word. I need, there may be a, de- a mm-hmm. different word to use, but it's it's a, for me it's it's about hope that's that's my best way of describing it in the in their context i think what do you do you have a more you would like to say about that always always <laughs> <laughs> thank you for asking right <laughs> i agree with you that i mean in literary studies we always talk about figures so it's kind of like a symbol So resurrection is a figure of hope, Mm -hmm. figure meaning it's a language construction or a language pattern, and it's a figure of hope. I also think it's a figure of the idea of continuance after catastrophe. When the worst happens, life and aliveness can go on. And I think the story creates a picture of that process. And I like to read biblical stories as pictures of emotional processes or spiritual processes. As you know, I like to read Father Richard Rohr. And over the Easter holidays, he was writing about resurrection and He was writing about, well, what can that mean apart from some kind of a literal physical miracle? Okay, if it's important to you to believe in that or think about that, that's fine. And there are other ways to think about it. And the way that he talks about resurrection is that it's not a one-time literal miracle, but a picture of an eternally recurrent Mm -hmm. pattern where horrifying suffering and death can be followed by new life. And I think we could say that about the Lazarus story. And I think we could say that about the Jesus story. And I wanted to offer a concrete example from today about what that resurrection pattern can look like. I appreciate you returning us to the context of the ancient Near East. And I do think it's really important to think about context and to illustrate this idea of an eternally recurrent pattern. I'm going to point to the history of Native Americans in these United States and the level of death and destruction and the wiping out of entire villages and the erasure of particular languages It's um, an overwhelming and entirely shocking amount of catastrophe, death and destruction. And yet, I spent 
this past Thursday and Friday with two remarkable Native artists, one a New York Times bestselling memoirist, <laughs> Therese Myatt, and the other is an artist and curator called Deborah Yepapapin, and Therese is from the Seabird Island Band, an indigenous person from Canada, and Deborah is Jemez Pueblo and Korean. And Deborah curated an exhibition at the Field Museum of Natural History of the work of living Indians. And her big point is we're not dead. We survived <laughs> the end of the world. <laughs> yeah. We survived right. genocide. We survived the apocalypse. And we are still here. And we're making work. We're making art. Mm -hmm. And I love this. Deborah and a group of her colleagues are opening a Native owned gallery called the Center for Native Futures. Mm. So mm -hmm. I would say that that's a picture. Mm -hmm. That's that's how that resurrection pattern works, that after the unthinkable, right. life can go on. Yes. I, I do think that that happens all the time. Trauma survivors, that, that happens to all trauma survivors. The unthinkable occurs and life goes on. So I like to think about it that way. <laughs> can I also ask you, this is a, a little bit of a jump cut. I, I wanted to go back to Permission Granted, and in your chapter 7 of Permission Granted, that chapter is called Biblical Women, Silent Submissive Babymakers, <laughs> and you have a concern, and Duffy's collection has a concern with the women whose voices are often left out of biblical stories. This is something that really frustrates a lot of my women's students. Either there are limited roles for women in biblical stories, they're limited to their role in reprodu reproduction, or women's subjectivities are just missing, or women are getting blamed for bad things that happen. And Duffy's collection looks to imagine the women more fully. <laughs> and I, it makes me wonder, is there a particular woman that you wish hmm. Duffy had presenced in this collection? Right. I... I'm not sure if I have a response to that, um, partly because I'm not familiar with all of the women that she does tackle. And I know that she mm, takes mm -hmm. on some really important females who are or might not be mentioned in those biblical stories, but she takes on their perspectives. She does. She does Salome, Herod's wife. That's right. The Devil's Wife. I, yeah, I like The Devil's they're, Wife, they're, yeah. They're really fun. They are fun. I, and I, I, I feel like I should also mention, since we're, we're talking about the figure of Lazarus, I feel like I should mention that Sylvia Plath has a poem called Lady Lazarus. <laughs> but uh, that's not the one I picked because, you know, I'm not a big fan of Sylvia Plath. I just committed a heresy for my profession. You did. But you did. That's the truth. But I'll stand that's by the you. Truth. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Well, well um, you know, I think if I if and this is just in the midst of this conversation, I think yeah. one of the things that at least from my time in very conservative circles, we, as females in the, in those circles, we were taught and we found ways to very, to embrace this, the woman in Proverbs 31, 
And I know that you and I have a very different take on some of those aspects of Proverbs 31. But what's interesting to me is I wasn't taught to embrace the parts that you like about it. Mm. I was taught to embrace the ones that had to do with homemaking and being a very sweet and uh, submissive woman to a man and all of the things about, you know, making my own clothes and things about the household. But the part that I know stands out to you is that she made plans. She saved her money and she bought she bought a field. Like that's you know thinking outside and doing things in the world and and that also resonates with who you are. And so I, I think there's a part of me that would love it if she had taken on and done maybe a flip side of the Proverbs 31 woman. That's just kind of here on the spot a response because so many women I know. Um, myself included, just are not drawn to the, you know, sewing and really important things that help run a household. And if I could make my own clothes, you know, that would be lovely. But it does, there's nothing about crafts around the household that appeal to me, nothing, you know, and I watch people around me making these gorgeous quilts and all these things. I'm like, that's great. None of it appeals to me. And I don't want to feel bad about that. (laughs) And I did feel bad about that for quite some time. Do you see what I'm saying? So yes, nor should you. You're reminding me, you're reminding me of a time a church friend invited me to take a, oh, what, what is it called? It's a felt artwork Mm. class that you can make. Mm artwork hats mm-hmm. out of boiled wool right. and felt. Felting, yeah. And I remember she asked me if I would like to to take a felting class with her. And I thought to myself, how do I say heck no? Uh-huh. Politely. Uh-huh. Right? Last thing on Not my list. <laughs> Don't want to touch any felt. Um, so right. I, I really relate to you. And I'm really struck. I do remember you and I talking about the Proverbs 31 woman. And I... I'm really struck by how free I have been to focus on other parts of the stories because I did not grow up in an evangelical context. And I know I told you this story before, but I taught Proverbs 31 once in an honors class. The students in that class are so they were so incredible, so accomplished, so smart, so insightful. And as it happened, All of them had grown up in religious contexts of one kind or another, some more free than others. And there was an incredibly brilliant and accomplished young woman. And I noticed in class that while we were reading the Proverbs 31 woman, when we were reading those passages out loud, I noticed that she was becoming redder and redder and redder in the face until she was almost purple. And I wondered what was going on with her. It was a very tiny class, me and six or seven other students. So I was aware of every other student. And when we finished, I I really didn't know what to do. I was worried that she was maybe very sick. I, I didn't know what to do. And so I just waited and she was able to speak and she spoke first. And as she spoke, she had tears streaming down her face, and she told us all that she had more or less been emotionally clubbed with the Proverbs 31 woman. And she's had always been a young woman with ambitions outside the home and all kinds of plans for herself. And 
her father had used that story to try to shape her into something that she wasn't. And it it hurt her. It really hurt her. And when I listen to you and when I listen to young women like that student, I am aware how hurt people can become because of certain kinds of interpretations. You're right. When I read Proverbs 31 woman, I say, oh, wow, look at that. That woman is at the center of the household's finances. She manages the finances. She buys real estate. She's extremely active. She's running everything. I like that woman. I have that freedom because nobody ever clubbed me over the head with that woman. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I have another woman that another writer, the Russian poet Anna Akhmatova, gave voice to, and that's Lot's wife. Mm, I love her rendering of that passage. I love it. <laughs> yeah, we will we will talk about that on another podcast. But Akhmatova imagines that backward glance from the point of view of Lot's wife, and it's. It's magnificent. Jennifer, can I ask you if you think that it's fair to call this kind of poetry what Carol Ann Duffy is doing, Anna Akhmatova, Ursula Le Guin, anyone who imagines the voice of a woman whose voice isn't actually featured in the biblical story? Do you think it's fair to call that midrash or the other term is lectio divina, the practice of reading into a text, something that isn't there, but taking an imaginative journey with a text to imagine what's missing? I do think it's it's absolutely fair to call it midrash. And I know that you're a fan of her work also. Will Gaffney has a, Wilda Gaffney has a book called Womanist Midrash that I would recommend to anyone listening. It's funny because when you mentioned Lectio Divina, mm -hmm. all this stuff from my past flooded in. Mm. And I had been taught about Lectio Divina by men. Mm -hmm. And so the Lectio Divina that I have participated in was always focused on meditating on the words in the scripture mm. and where do those words take us. Mm -hmm. And they're not going to take us to places like Carol Ann Duffy's poem because the words in there are devoid of the women's voices. And you've got to be thinking all, radically alternatively mm -hmm. to get there. And so even this, what's meant to be a very a, a nourishing spiritual practice for me has been a practice that perpetuated misogyny, actually, and perpetuated. <laughs> yes. Told me to ingest these scripture, you know, take it in and meditate on it further. And what does it say? And and it was still kind of a male voice dominated experience. So it isn't that you couldn't find women's voices in, as you reflect on. But I think there's something for me in the framework of the stories itself that keeps us from being able to see the women, especially, I should say, for those of us who are well, kind of, we're good at agreeing with what is there. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I think I prefer the language midrash, because it opens up this space of curiosity, which allows for the idea of what isn't being said. It allows for that space. For me, if, if for other people, Lectio Divina allows them to, to wander, that's great. That has not been my experience. And the word, the, the, the word being divine 
and being male oriented is uh, is a little troublesome to me. So I, yeah. I like, yeah, Midrash works for me. Midrash works. <laughs> so yeah. let me ask you one more question. What do you think we get out of Midrash like Carol Ann Duffy's or Anna Akhmatova's when we make an imaginative exercise out of thinking about who some of the women are, how they might have felt, because I think that's what Mrs. Lazarus does, fully fleshes out the subjectivity of a woman who thought her husband was dead and then got this surprise. You know, not too long ago from when you and I are having this conversation, recording this conversation, I saw someone on Twitter and it was, I think it was a week or two prior to Easter this year. I think this passage must have come up, right, in the lectionary. And it was a young man and he was posting on Twitter and he said, I'm just going to be really vulnerable and say, I'm not really comfortable with Jesus choosing not to raise Lazarus just so he could make a point. And I, you know, you know, I, I just wrote back, I tweeted back in that and I said, you know, what's sad to me is that you feel like there's something wrong with the fact that you're, you're challenging a passage in scripture and that there's something wrong for you to do that. And that you're feeling vulnerable, like it's like you shouldn't be saying this. And really, what he was doing was choose like he was seeing the real lives behind the story yeah and he was thinking about what that was doing to those real lives almost like a form of manipulation mm-hmm. or some sort of you know uh presentation some performance right. as you said at the right. beginning um and so that's i mean every time gene when you introduce me to a new poem that's what's happening for me is I'm realizing how I haven't thought about the real lives involved in this story. Even in however many years I've been doing this renegotiation of my own belief system and my own relation to these to these passages, there's still elements in there that I'm discovering through you showing me these poems. I <laughs> just I hadn't thought about that. I'd, I'd never thought about Lot's wife that way. I had never had the time to reconsider Lot's wife. And so I only had one that I grew up with. And oh, what a lovely, life-giving kind of a way of looking at this that challenges the way I had been taught to think about it. It allows me to connect with it better. I connect with these stories better when I read them through the eyes of these poets. I Yeah, I, I do too. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. I don't want to cut you yeah. off. No, that's, I think that's enough. You know, <laughs> I, <laughs> that's what it does. Yeah, I completely agree. And I will say that even though I wasn't raised in a restrictive religious tradition, just from living in the culture, I also absorb the most conventional readings of all of these stories. So even if we're not acculturated in a conservative religious tradition, I think we are still acculturated to interpret biblical texts in an extremely conservative way. And people like me 
just can't relate to the Bible at all <laughs> if there's not if that's it. Yeah. If there's not a more expansive way to read. And the way that you were describing having been introduced to Proverbs 31 or the way that my student was introduced to Proverbs 31 reminds me of like horses that wear blinders so that they can mm-hmm. only see in a particular direction. And the they're poets, not distracted right. by, by everything around them. Yes. <laughs> they're they're controlled and they're focused mm-hmm. and what they see is restricted so that they're easier to control. Exactly. And the poets just take the blinders off. And it's very interesting then what interpretation can do. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, and that leads me, I actually did want to know if you've read Mrs. Lazarus with students. I know that some of the some of the work you and I have engaged together is what you do share with students. Have you read this poem with students before? I have not read this poem. I haven't read any Carol Ann Duffy poems with students, and I will tell you why. I find Carol Ann Duffy extremely acerbic. Um, <laughs> I like acerbic, and, every and the now and then. the irony is so bitter. Uh, as you know, there's also a poem called Salome. Um, Listeners, you can look it up. You can Google it. You can look it up on the Internet and read Salome. It's so biting. I just have Mm. never been able to read it with students. And I don't like it. I find it very unsettling. I find the portrayal of women in Carol Ann Duffy's poetry um, disturbing. Ah. Okay. Uh, I I don't love the way that women are portrayed. Uh-huh. I get it how irreverent and provocative and impetuous the portrayals are, and that's cool. I don't happen to to love those portrayals. My friend Katrina taught in England for quite a while and was asked to teach Salome with high school students. And when I heard that, I I, I just was shocked. I thought, oh my gosh, what student needs to read about Salome's glee after waking up (laughs) with John the Baptist's head in her bed? I That's so, I'm glad I was never made to teach that to high school students. I thought it was a curious choice. But yeah, she's not my favorite. Duffy's not my favorite. So I, I haven't. And so I don't have any student reactions. But I can okay. tell you that I have taught the Anna Akhmatova. I've taught Ursula Le Guin. And what these, this type of like modern or postmodern midrash does is it allows students to open up interpretation and to see that there are many ways to read biblical texts and to be licensed to go ahead and freely imagine what are those meanings that perhaps are not relevant in a religious context or perhaps are even threatening in a religious context. Go ahead and go there. It's okay. Um, So, yeah, but I haven't done that with Duffy yet. Okay. I might do that with the, The Devil's Wife. I might do that sometime. Okay. That's a fun one. Well, I actually am hoping that you and I will do Anna Akhmatova yes. and the Ursula Le Guin sometime soon on this podcast. Yes. So I, I will look forward to doing that with you. That's great. I commit to that. Well, thank you for this conversation. <laughs> yeah. This was really fun. I appreciate it. This was a it. fun one. Absolutely. All right. Talk to you again soon. Mm-hmm. 
thank you for listening to episode 9 of the Wild Olive Podcast. If you enjoy game-changing conversations about literature, culture, and the Bible, subscribe for the latest episode and tell others all about Wild Olive. Nick Stubblefield composes our music, and you'll find episode notes at our website, wildolivebibleandculture.org. You can ask Jean or Jennifer a question by emailing connect at wildolivebibleandculture.org. Thanks again, and we'll catch you next time.